Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping, especially for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Jonathan Morgan. Jonathan's a friend of mine. He's been on the show once before. This is his second time on the show, and he's a, an excellent theologian, teaches uh, systematic theology for the School of Theology and Ministry here at Indiana Wesleyan, uh, just uh, on the other side of the campus from the seminary. And our text this week is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already doing so, so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening and enjoying the show, uh, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass the show along so the others may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Jonathan. Yeah, you go ahead. Jump on in. Genesis 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Okay. Well, this is the longest you'll hear me at one point. Here we go. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, 
with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our image. And let them have dominion over the flat fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word, this word that has been written down and that we have read and heard which bears witness to a word that was surely uh, spoken and told and sung for years, which in turn bears witness to the word that you spoke when you brought all things into existence. The word that has always been in your presence and the word that having sprung forth at the beginning of time, became flesh in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray, asking that uh, we would hear and receive your word with faith, Uh, both John and I as uh, students of the word and all those who are listening in across time and space over time, that uh, they too would be uh, empowered by your word, empowered by your spirit, uh, to receive your word with faith. So we ask this all now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for reading. You're right. That That is kind of a, uh, you know, it's a monster text to make my guest read, but you know, no, that's okay. <laughs> you got it. It's, it's a whole chunk, you know, like 
you, you either have to take you, have, you either have to take it in seven weeks or all at once. You can't mm-hmm. like what do you do? Break it in half? Like you know, there's just no yeah. Where would you? There's no way around it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a unity. It's a it single. Meant, unity. It was meant to be one whole unit, and so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll go with the spirit of the the author. Let's say. So. Yeah. 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 So uh, what jumps out at you today as you read and, and saw and heard this text afresh today? What's, what's grabbing your attention today? What's grabbing my attention today? Of course, when you um, emailed me some time ago and said, hey, I think we'll do Genesis 1, I thought, boy, there's, there's a lot there to dive into. So many conversations um, in, in various fields. One thing stuck out to me today. So I was reading the very beginning of it. Um, the the words the phrase without form void and and darkness so this of course um describes the beginning of things before god began to put his his plan of creation in, in action and i was thinking about the way that the text unfolds and what god begins to do right it seems like the i don't know if you can call it a problem but the problem is there is there is lack of form there's void and there's darkness. Then in reverse order, it seems like the rest of the text, God reverses that problem, or we'll say reverses that condition, right? So with darkness, the first thing he does is say, let there be light. And then through much of chapter one, when he's speaking things into existence through his logos, through his word, he's filling this void with, with, with objects, with life, with things. And then I know I'm cheating a little bit here, borrowing from 2.7, but the last thing God does is he forms something, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he takes man and he, we know that he, he didn't create humanity in the same way that he created everything else in terms of speaking it forth. This is the one thing God seems to use material to actually form there. So I was looking at that today thinking, okay, this is uh, maybe something I haven't quite seen in this way before. We sometimes think of this text as being some kind of a text that helps us understand the nothingness out of which God created. I don't know that it's a great text for creation ex nihilo. Of course, you, you kind of have to look elsewhere for that. But yeah. So so instead of instead of just nothingness, you have you you have these particular adjectives, and so I think it's interesting that from from there on, God reverses each one of those conditions. So now where there was darkness, He has brought forth light. Where there was void. God has spoken and life and things, objects have come into the void to fill it. And then at the very end, he actually forms something. I don't know if that, I don't know if that is significant or not, but it, it seemed that maybe the writer meant to do that. I don't know. Um, to, to put things at the very beginning and then in, in reverse order to show how God resolves these, these conditions. Yeah, it's certainly possible. It's it's very interesting to think about, even if the exact terminology is not being reversed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clear that this tohu vabohu, this this formless and void, and they're they're not synonyms, but there may be a, a kind of Hebrew parallel where they're kind of yes. you know a kind of seconding, a deepening. Yeah. But this kind of like. Um, the contrast between formless and void and darkness mm-hmm. over the, the deep and the waters mm-hmm. yeah. versus 
land and vegetation. It's so full. It's so bright. It's so full of life, right? It's the, the contrast is so clearly there. And I, I, I liked how you kind of like, it was clever for you to say like this problem. Well, maybe not. a. I mean, you could say like from a storytelling point of view, that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, But you want to, you know, condition is a nice, more neutral kind of, because it is kind of hard to find the words uh, before the beginning. Because of before the beginning is a kind of actually kind of a, a an almost impossible thought because because yes. to be before the beginning is that's now the beginning right so I mean it's right. so so I mean not that it I mean I'm I'm putting that philosophically but it, it's not just a philosophical problem it's a it's a, a storytelling problem how do you narrate <laughs> how do you name that which preceded things that need names right <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it's kind of hard to do and so you find the author writing these words like formless and you know void okay. empty yeah. and you know dark yeah. And yeah. <laughs> the deeps and the, the waters you know before yeah. there was like you know kind of the, chaos. the heavens and the earth yeah, yeah. yeah the chaos exactly yeah. yeah yeah no i think that's really striking and i i hadn't ever seen the the possibility of the formlessness mm-hmm. line sort of standing in a kind of parallelism with chapter two and would bring chapter one and two into a greater unity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a fascinating, a fascinating insight. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that a ton. Yeah. More of a theological unit. You know, of course there's, you know, the, a lot of the older scholarship would say that these of course are written by different, you know, different authors, different sources, but definitely we could say that there's this theological cohesion there in lots of different ways. And maybe that's just what I just explained is maybe one more way of, 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 yeah. bridging, of bridging the two together. Yeah. yeah, no, it's certainly, certainly the, at least in its final form, it's all one unity. That's why that last yeah. line from verse four is relevant. These are the generations. Cause that's a, that's right. a line that appears, I believe 11 times over the book of Genesis. Mm. Um, mm. So you see those later, uh, they're sometimes at the head of a, or the header, the header of a, uh, uh, of just a genealogy. Sometimes mm. it's the way that each, it's the way that the Abraham, story, Isaac's story, Jacob's story are kind of marked the beginning yeah. as mm. their generations, the coming yeah. they're coming to be. Yeah. So the, to just kind of see that, you know, in many ways it, the story does come to a close in verse four, but at the same time it's pressing us forward and that's kind of bringing it into unity. This is the one big, one big book of Genesis, this narrative, this story. And that was, I mean, that's what was striking me today, especially is, so there's these, there's all these things that I'm always drawn to that are mentioned only a few times, like formless and void, or the reference to the spirit of God, or the, the handful of things that aren't given names or called good. Right? But hearing you read it out loud, just I was much more struck by what was repeated Right. Mm-hmm. And one that was grabbing me today was according to their kinds, mm-hmm. <laughs> man, mm-hmm. that that's, that's a, that was a lot that was said so many times, this kind of this, uh, what, what that, what that points to, I don't know. I, I don't know why I was so drawn by it, but it was just really striking just how many times once there's life involved, mm-hmm. right, that life is somehow linked with generation and the, uh, the, 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 the seeds and yeah. the population and multiplication according yeah. to kind is all built in from the beginning. Absolutely. That, that was, that was striking to me. Yeah. 
I actually noticed that too while I was reading it. That I'm really <laughs> You're like, how many times am I going to say that? <laughs> According to its kind, yeah. No, but I think it's I think it's beautiful because it shows that this is yeah, as you said, it's built in. So when when, when people notice these things just through natural observation and they go back to the text, yeah, okay, God has God has a way of ordering things, and I, I like that connection as well. Yeah. So like so like this isn't the the first, but verse twenty four. It says, so So I, I think you rightly said there's a new verb in chapter two, verse seven, mm-hmm. yatsar, the, the formed out of the earth or shaped. And that contrasts, I guess, with the opening moment of just speaking and boom, it's there. And there, in some sense, those are kind of totally different. Mm-hmm. But then there's also kind of a, there's an emerging progression because it, in between there, you've got some, you can also think of it as a spectrum with those as the two extremes, right? The human on one end the the light on the other and in between you get these weird moments in like verse 24 and god said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind and it's interesting because it's almost like it's almost like he's commanding i mean it's put in this kind of passive way but he's almost commanding okay now earth let the creatures come on out Mm-hmm. You know, almost like they're giving birth. I, I, I'm being silly, well, but it, but it's it's poetic. It's poetic, not scientific or both. If but it's right. certainly yeah. at least sure. poetic. Yeah, this kind of birthing forth of these living creatures, uh-huh. and then the according to their kinds, all of a sudden makes even more sense because it's not they're all just one big kind called animals that come out of the earth. Even though they're all coming out of the earth, they then each have their own now lineage that flows yes. out. And it's anticipating that generations line I mentioned in, in verse two, four, that mm-hmm. is this repeated theme throughout the book of Genesis that, that there's a kind of a lineage, a genealogy. I'm trying to think of how the, the genealogies that seem to interrupt the flow of the narrative in Genesis mm-hmm. are actually kind of integral to the story and to the worldview of the mm-hmm. book. Is this making sense? That's kind of what was on my mind today as I was hearing according to their kinds is already being kind of anticipated. Mm-hmm. There's some problematic things that are being raised by that, that I'm, I'm setting aside for now. I just want to kind of highlight the kind of God's kind of commanding the earth. Yeah. You know, commands the seas to teem with waters, command the earth to bring forth these animals, each of whom have their own uh, species, right? You could just mm-hmm. translate it as species, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's what grabbed me today was this, this according to the kinds thing. Let's take a quick break and come back and dig in a little deeper. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Jonathan Morgan. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. So kind of the opening uh, chapter of Genesis and of the Bible, uh, which is not on accident. I, Jonathan was on for the first time uh, just a year ago today for Trinity Sunday. John is a trained systematic theologian like myself. And so um, it, when I was putting together the schedule last year, I'm like, well, I'll have John on Trinity Sunday and we can geek out about the Trinity a little bit. Um, although I actually had a great time with you, not just geeking, but really talking about the text and about mm-hmm. the pastoral questions of preaching. And and I was thinking, oh, it'd be fun to have him back for Trinity. And then I looked at the text and since we switched to Old Testament text, Trinity is the the last, kind of the last day right after the Pentecost season and kind of begins the summer kind of ordinary time. And this year in the lectionary that we're following it's just kind of doing a mostly just kind of through the Bible 
pretty sequential. The texts all summer, mostly from Genesis and Exodus, these kind of narratives. So in a way, I mean, we could talk about the Trinity if we want, but, uh, but uh, in a way we're kind of just starting. So you're getting to kind of be the premiere, the first episode of the the summer series that'll be all on Old Testament narratives. So yes. no Sunny, pressure. Right. I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be the first. Yeah. <laughs> the new season. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, you mentioned uh, uh, a few things. You, you brought up this question of creation ex nihilo. We don't have to spend time on this creation out of nothing, but if you want to, we could even briefly, sure. um, whether this is how this text relates to that, doctrine would you be willing to comment a little more you made a passing comment moved on and maybe you'd be willing well, to just say something briefly about that yeah well sometimes when we we talk about creation ex nihilo of course we assume rightly so that before there was creation there was god and there was nothing that isn't god i mean it, there's god and there's mm-hmm. nothing but we have to piece that together from other scriptural passages and what we think about god alone being eternal etc and I made the passing reference that in the very beginning of Genesis, you have these you have these terms, you know, form void, darkness, but you don't have you know, nothingness. And so what I was saying was the doctrine of creation out of nothing, which has been almost a Christian consensus for, I mean, it really caught on more and more in the fourth, fifth century. And I don't know how, how that doctrine has played out through the medieval period. You know, I, I haven't really done a deep dive on that. But of course, Athanasius is a fan and other fathers are as well, but we really can't, I, I don't know that we can look to Genesis one as like a definitive proof yeah. text to say, Oh yeah, there was, there was nothing because there seems to be, if nothing else, a kind of, of chaos there. Yeah. And we know there were some early Christians, you know, second century who, who thought of creation, not so much in ex nihilo, but God creating something out of um, kind of a, a, like a formless matter. There, mm-hmm. like something existed that was um, something that was like, let's we'll say, um, a primordial ooze that didn't really have any order yeah. to it. And God did something with that um, rather than there was God and only God. And then God, out of the, you know, superabundance of love, decided I want something to share my life with. And so there you go. So, you know, the, the doctrine of creation out of nothing, most Christians hold it, but it, it does have... Um, it wasn't immediately obvious, yeah, uh, from the from the from 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 the beginning of of the Christian era. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And I mean, I mean, one thing is formless void and even darkness, since darkness is the absence of light, and right. formless and void tohu bavohu are pretty difficult words mm-hmm. in terms of translation. I mean, mm-hmm. bohu only appears three times in the Old Testament, right? So it's kind of like it'd be one thing to th- those are. It's it's possible once you have the the notion of God creating out of nothing to kind of take those in a nothing sense, um, but the rest of the sentence you're just you're stuck because it's a face of the deep and the face of the waters. Like Water. the waters are already there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to get around that. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if there was no if there was no waters there, right? If it was but only, the waters are already there. <laughs> if it was only if it yeah. was only the, the void that the darkness. Well, then maybe you could do that, but. But before God makes anything, yeah. there seems to be waters. But the spirit is yeah. hovering over, and um, and we could yeah, we, and, that, we could and it's important for the yeah, <clears throat> and it's important for the interpretation. The first two days in the way that the the waters are kind of managed on the second day. Mm. Waters aren't created; they're already there. Yeah. What's created is the heavens that separate waters below and above, 
which then anticipate the flood story in chapter six, when the Mm -hmm. waters from below and above are unleashed again. Yeah. Chaos comes back as it were. Chaos comes back. It's Um, a, yeah. It's a decreating event. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and and the deep and the waters there are somewhat, you know, again, in parallel. And so the, the depths and the waters is a kind of chaos that's, Mm -hmm. that's being, that's being managed and put into order, put in its place Mm -hmm. um, is pretty crucial. Again, it's the heaven that's gets called good, Mm -hmm. not the waters. It's the um, actually, no, he doesn't even call it good. Interestingly, he only gives it a name. Mm -hmm. Interestingly. And in the first day, only the light is called good, not the light and the darkness, just Mm -hmm. the light gets called good or seen as good. And I think um, it, sometimes he sees it, sometimes he calls it good, you know, there's back and forth, but, but yeah. it's interesting because, Oh, go ahead. You're going to say something. I was just going to add on to what you said. So in nine and 10, I think w- what he calls good is, is the, is the gathering of the waters, not, not, yes. maybe, not maybe not the waters themselves, but, but, but the act of, of yep. putting waters here and dry land here. And so there's now a distinction between them in order that is considered good now. Yep. God saw that it was good. Now that the waters have been gathered into seas, now they're good because they've been managed. So they've been rendered good, having been either neutral or negative or something. All this is to say is, you tell me, but I I think the logic of the creation out of nothing doctrine is is pretty impeccable. And it's a good doctrine. And I think it, it is a coherent and right implication of a lot of scriptural teaching. Yeah. To say that the creation of out of nothing is true, mm-hmm. even to say that it's biblical in the sense of the whole witness of scripture mm-hmm. is different than saying Genesis one teaches it. <laughs> and, and this is a distinction that's very hard. So sometimes though, because some people want to say, Oh, you don't think Genesis one teaches that. Oh, well then you are a heretic. It's like, no, no, no. The Orthodox line is that Genesis one is that God created out of nothing, that that's true. Yeah. And there, and we also believe that the scriptures are true. So we can't believe that Genesis one absolutely contradicts it. So they have to be in some yeah. sense compatible, Yes, but that doesn't mean that Genesis one explicitly teaches the doctrine. Exactly. You can just be okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was alluding to sometime earlier, right? About how, yeah. you know, we, we believe creation out of nothing, but we don't solely rely on this text yeah. to inform that, that belief. You it, it can support it. I don't think it blatantly contradicts it, but I don't know that. I, I, I like what you said. The, the, the testimony of scripture speaks to it, that it makes very, very logical sense um, in terms of who God is and the creator creation distinction. But Genesis isn't interested in really exploring that. Yeah. Just yeah. more the hint of it, but not, it doesn't seem like that's the main thing that comes out of this text. Yeah. No, I think that's important because I think, you know, it's, it's, especially when you have two theologians on a, on a radio show like this, like sometimes it's worth, like, I'll be asked, like, how do I teach on, on such and such a doctrine? And I'm always kind of, I'm always kind of divided on it. Cause I'm like, I don't know, don't preach on doctrines, preach texts, man. You know, like, like preach the text yeah. and you know, yeah, I know your doctrines, you know, don't go out of your way to undermine them comment on them as needed. Uh, But actually, honestly, if you want to talk about creation out of nothing, there's texts in Isaiah and texts in Romans that are more relevant. In Hebrews, Um, perhaps. Yes, right, right. Um, 
Yeah. So whereas, you know, when you're preaching on Genesis, uh, let the text speak, you know, don't uh, try to fit it into your preconceived doctrine box, even though I love doctrine. I'm, I don't, I don't want doctrine to have to do uh, all the work uh, to, to overwork a text, you know, because then it just it sets people up for disappointment when they get older and realize that text didn't really mean that, you know, <laughs> and then they'll think, Oh, you, Oh, your doctrine's built on sand. It's like, no, it was never actually built on Genesis one alone in Absolutely. the first place. If at all, Genesis yeah. one might even stand in tension with that doctrine a little bit, a little bit but maybe, to not yeah. be worried about that, to not lose sleep over that. That's at least the advice that I tend to get. I like how you say, don't let doctrine overwork a text because it absolutely can't do that. But at the same time, you know, you have to work within the tension of, not letting doctrine overwork a text, but at the same time, our theological prism does play a role in our interpretation yeah. of the text, of course. You know, whether you're talking about Irenaeus and the rule of faith or, or whatever, you know, there are doctrinal commitments that we have that do guide us, but we get into trouble when some of our doctrinal commitments almost obfuscate the text because we're trying to read too much into it. Yeah, I mean, a classic so one is here in Genesis, right? Yeah, This is a good example, right? Verse so, 27, right, where it says, we, let us create image of God. This is often taken as this, like, proof text that God was already triune. Now, I believe, mm-hmm. because of the rule of faith, that God was already three persons in one God sure. when God said this. Mm-hmm. But that's different than saying this text proves that, because in point of fact, you know, the word God is actually a plural noun, and to use plural verbs is totally appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's Elohim there, right? Yeah, so you yeah. could so you could translate the word God as gods every yeah. single sentence in the Old Testament. <laughs> Most people don't want to go there. <laughs> no. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, again, this is one of those texts where having already seen from the whole testimony of Scripture what the church has taught, yes, God is triune. He always, he's always, always has been. That, you know, verse 26, 27 can be maybe maybe a supporting passage, but it can't be like the defining passage that for, from mm-hmm. the very beginning in Genesis 1, we're told that God is a trinity. Well, it doesn't tell us that God is triune. Us can mean eight, ten, two. I mean, it's plural, right. but it doesn't right. necessarily mean three. And so, again, reading back into it from what sure, we understand fine. from the New Testament, John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Okay, yeah, now I can maybe now i can can understand this in a trinitarian sense but if i if i don't then this by itself doesn't doesn't tell me that god is necessarily triune yeah actually and it's ironic that 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 functions that way for people for our churches sometimes because there's actually pretty good again you still need the rule of faith but there's actually a lot more to work with in terms of trinity doctrine in the opening verses you don't have to wait till 27 (laughs) it's that you've got the spirit blowing before and you and then god speaks yeah through his word word yeah yeah so word and and even and since the word for spirit ruach is Mm -hmm. both spirit wind and breath yeah wind and to speak to speak a word you have to add breath to a thought out comes a spoken word always has both breath and word. The early fathers pointed this out all the time. And now again, that doesn't get full blown Trinity doctrine because that's only God in relation to us, not God in himself, but it's still pretty great. And it's still a lot more. And it actually connects with what's going on in like, say John one, when it says in the beginning was the word, Mm -hmm. you know, and the references to light and all that there, it actually, you actually, there is a lot to work with here on, even on Trinity Sunday to to say something about, 
God as triune. Again, not grounding your whole faith on a couple words. That's always, I think, a mistake. But it is. I would agree with that. But to let it inform, yeah, I wouldn't object to that. I'm glad that you were cool. I don't know what word I used. Was it overwork or something? Overwork. Um, yeah. I was trying to find a less uh, a less uh, snooty academic term, which is <laughs> overdetermined. That's the term okay, we yeah. use. That, the professionals, a, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's yeah. You and I, I think will our, not, you and I will use those terms, and we're just together, not doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not very helpful. Yeah, no, it's not. But. Uh, but but I do believe that that it would shape it, affect our reading, but not to not mm-hmm. you know overdo it, overwork it. It's not the um, controlling idea. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 No, I like that. Um, That's good. That's good. No, I'm I'm delighted. That was kind of I had that. I didn't want to necessarily pick a fight with you, but I did. I had tucked in the back of my mind. I'm like, I wonder how John and I if if we'll have different attitudes about the relationship between good exegesis mm-hmm. and theology. And it sounds like you and I are not as I wasn't expecting us to be far apart. I, I just, I like picking fights cause it's interesting. Uh, only, only to generate some heat and light. So hopefully some light in the process, but right. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds right. like you and I are relatively simpatico on some of these issues. Probably, yeah, probably so. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't seem too stuck on wanting to have a, a ro- uh, of, it doesn't have to go into a full blown robustly Christian meaning. You, you can let the text give it some breathing room right. and, and yeah. I'm I'm happy to hear that. Not that we have to agree. It would have probably been more entertaining if we disagreed. But well, ne- um. <laughs> ne- next time let's find out something we disagree. Yes, on, in advance. We'll do, one, we'll do one of these again. And we'll just yell yes. at each other, and everyone can in advance. That podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know what? I tell I even tell you know students in theology 101. Um, maybe maybe this can apply here. Just the idea of progressive revelation. You know that that. God doesn't just dump all the information about himself that he wants known all at once, but the Bible seems to speak progressively in what is, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus' Oration on the Spirit is a great example of this, when he's talking yeah. about how the, you know, the, the, the Trinitarian progression, or, or the, not the Trinitarian progression, but the, the way that God reveals himself as Trinity is, is progressively. Mm-hmm. The, the Old Testament um, emphatically emphasizes the Father while suggesting the Son, and the New Testament centralizes the sun while suggesting the spirit. And so there's, there's a way in which the, the texts old into new Testament flows that what's opaque dim in the old Testament becomes clearer in the new. And then under the spirit's guidance, the church makes more sense of these things and we get the councils and everything else. Well, then we read back into the old Testament, all this other information about what God has revealed. And we can say, okay, now I can see this in a more, for instance, Trinitarian light. Now I can see Genesis 1 can support ex nihilo, but by themselves, by itself, the text doesn't clearly teach Trinity, clearly teach creation out of nothing, but it's part of the, the unfolding revelation of God. Yeah, that's great. God's a good teacher. Can't dump right. it all at once. Right. Folding slowly, right? People need to start slow, and then we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get a little bit more and a little bit more. So, yeah. So absolutely no, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't think there would be a um, a real difference Which, between us. Theology actually, as you say that, I mean, you know, a lot of this would make its way into a sermon, maybe on a Sunday morning. But but as background, you know, it's kind of that sort of character of God that you're highlighting mm. in terms of these more technical issues that were or more uh, larger sort of theological questions that we're asking mm-hmm. today as I, I would hope would happen because it's you and me, but uh, that, that there, there's a character of God in that, that, that sort of methodical, patient, 
timely work. That characteristic of God does come to expression already in this chapter. Already. Absolutely. Yeah. You see this kind of, I mean, I got to be careful to not project, you know, make, uh, make God in my own image too much here, but (laughs) I'm seeing, it's like, you're almost like seeing God constructing the syllabus, right? Just kind of laying it out. Day one, day two. (laughs) I'm being silly. I know, but. And there's, and there's even the weird thing that happens again. You, 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 you only know your own experience. And so I'll do my best to not, trap God in this box, but there's six days of, of, of forming of creating. And yet there's really like eight actions because day three and six have a kind of second moment each time, Mm -hmm. right? Like on day three. um, So each, you know, each of the days begins with God said, but then only three and six have a kind of second God said. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Which then, of course, mm. now this is a this is a weird question. But when you ask about the prehistory of a text, you can wonder, was there ever a kind of eight day creation story out there mm. that has been transformed? I'm not advancing that hypothesis as much to say that it's not implausible that mm. this story, if you would have, if you stuck in different day markers, mm-hmm. it would actually flow perfectly as eight days. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that's what it was. I'm saying that that. That that counter that, that having that uh, thought experiment helps you notice the doubling, and then it makes you wonder what's important about what happens on three and six that it needs to be two actions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, three is clearly two actions, right? It's let the waters be gathered, and then the set, you know, three we'll call it three B. God then commands the earth to sprout forth the vegetation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then. That is really paralleled then uh, because the seas that have been organized in 3A, they get filled on day five, Mm -hmm. right? So that breaks the parallelism slightly, Mm -hmm. although there were already waters in the the heaven. The the, the heavens and the waters were there in day two, so that's fine. Yeah. Day 6A, you get the earth bringing forth living creatures, and then 6B, and this is my agenda now moment, is – God speaks about making the human mm-hmm. Ha Adam, and it, in so, on from one point of view, Genesis six is very it's very modern in the way that it associates the human with all the animals, mm-hmm. and yet it also has this kind of this classical notion of a of a distinct humanity, right? That's right. not just one, another animal alongside the others. I feel like there's kind of a both and built into this structural observation. Does that make any yeah. sense? It does make sense. I love that. I like how you, how you put that. You know, wait a minute. This is the best part of it was was my my going on that rant and watching you move around to get your plug. Well, it was, as soon <laughs> it was as a blast. Your editing guys will edit this part out, but uh, no, leave it in. This is great. This is entertaining. Talking, my, my Mac said, you know, battery low with, with that like red that red thing up there. I was like, oh shoot. No, oh, I hear I you. This, I don't want this to die. So I went ahead and had to go go grab that. No, man. Yeah, all that's. That that's super helpful to think about. Um, huh? How do you what do you even pull off from that? One of the things I was going to say initially, before you gave some of that brilliant analysis of days three and six, you know that sometimes when you know people can get hung up on Genesis one, and whether it's scientific or whether it's you know, you were almost positing something that could be considered like literal uh, uh, literary framework, the way that the yeah. text is structured. I mean, there's lots of different ways to read this. 
And for some people who are newer to the faith or maybe troubled by it, we were talking about this chapter already expressing something very true about God's character. So I try to steer people into thinking about this text that way. Is it really, is the text really interested in a scientific step-by-step, here's how everything came to be? Is that the main issue? Or is the main issue the kind of creator we're talking about? The kind of creator that makes himself known. Here's what he makes. Here's how he does it. Yes, but this is what it, what it says about him. And I think one of the things that's helped me too in thinking about some of these things over the years is that, of course, a lot of people aren't aware, but some people are, that there were other creation stories that Israel's neighbors had that in yeah. some ways were somewhat similar to, to the creation story. And it's almost like the Genesis author, of course, knew those stories. And when he's under the, I believe, under the inspiration of the Spirit, describing Elohim and describing the way God creates and the way God is, it shows that he's a very different kind of deity, a very different, Mm -hmm. with very different interests, very different character, very different desires, very different purposes Mm -hmm. in creating than what their neighbors believed about their deities. Yeah, I mean, the the force, I mean, you know, you... I mean, we record these in advance, and that's not a big secret. But uh, but uh, but we are already in the throes of this COVID nineteen quarantine, yeah. and and when this drops, things may have changed, or they may have gotten worse. I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see uh, when this drops in late May, early June. But I mean, yeah. you know, to think when you're in a time when there's a lot of chaos, right, both on large and small scales, yeah. to to have a story of God. Not who simply creates orderly things into which chaos is introduced mm-hmm. by us, which I think is an important, true theme in Scripture. But it's not the only theme, and it's not the theme of Genesis 1. The mm. theme of Genesis 1 is whatever chaos is there, God is ordering it yes. and incorporating it into. Because it's not like he just takes the waters and makes them, annihilates them. No, he turns he them into orders. cities. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he puts them in their place. And to think of, of God creating order out of chaos, cosmos out of chaos, to use the, mm. the ancient terms, is, is, yeah, like you say, it tells us something about the character of God, whether it's six days, eight days, or mm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, not that anyone's proposing eight days, but I, it didn't even occur to me that, that by introducing that, Again, that thought experiment is mm-hmm. actually kind of highlights that the the precise numbering of the days is less crucial than the the overall kind of structuring. That was part of why I was having a, I was w- wanting to be careful with this projection, but yeah, I mean a, te- a good teacher knows that there's you know there's not you know sometimes I teach intro theology in a one week intensive, you know, and people say mm-hmm. how do you do that? How do you teach it in a week? And I always say how do you teach it in a semester? Right? It's like you're always you're always making decisions about how to structure a thing, yes. right? Yeah. And but the truth's the truth no matter how it comes through. And I think the character of God as the one who is ordering the chaos and and sovereign over Mm-hmm. Any 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 forces of chaos in this world? Yes. Um, even if he gives them a little bit of elbow room, he, his final authority is so clearly articulated, and that can be articulated with a whole range of sort of theories about the origins of the universe. I mean, those yeah. 
that that characteristic of God would be a constant across competing narratives. Now, I think it's fair to say that some scientific worldviews, not theories, but full-blown scientific worldviews, some are more are in greater tension with that vision of God than others. <laughs> but uh but it doesn't I don't think we have to rule out in advance, you know, a whole range of interpretations of this text, provided that characteristic of God is constant. That's what I learned from Steve Lennox. He was my exegesis prof in college. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah, good. Yeah. What does this tell us about God? That's always the final exegetical question. Yeah. What is the character of God that's manifested in this text? You know, and I think mm-hmm. you've you've highlighted that really well today. Um, in your comment just there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm inspired by it. Yeah. Well, you want to take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters? Yeah, let's do it. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Jonathan Morgan, a fellow uh, theologian and uh, a professor at Indian Wesleyan University. And John and I are looking at Genesis 1, chapter uh, 1, or verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Let's explore some sermon starters. Let's uh, hmm. say you're uh, someone's asking you for advice about preaching. We already gave some maybe general tips, but or maybe you're preparing a sermon. Maybe, uh, you know, it's hmm. like last minute. Someone's got to fill in. They already printed out the bulletins, and Genesis 1's the text. And hmm. How do you approach preaching on this text? Well, oh, how boy. would you bring shape to a sermon on Genesis 1? Oh, well, I'm being redundant here, but I would say I would say if you're having to preach on Genesis one, main issue is again character of God. We we learn something about what kind of God that He is, and we also learn something about what He's made. Even going back to according to its kind, right? There's the mm. in the world, in the way things are, and the sort of the givens of nature. There's 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 an order. There's a beauty. There's a harmony here that is at least reflective of something about God's God's beauty, God's God's being. So I would let's see. I'll probably start there, and it would be hard. And you can help me here because you do this all the time with these things. But it seems like it would be difficult to preach from the whole passage. Maybe not. But when I preach, I usually like to take a smaller section and really dig into it. This would be harder mm-hmm. to you know, suck all the marrow out of and, and keep within like a 30 minutes. <laughs> so I'm thinking just of, of preaching about the grander themes here. Sure. Uh, you well, know, I think you could, you could read the text, you know, you could read or have it, have it spoken, have someone read it. Who's a great reader poetically, but then in the preaching of it, you know, really zoom in on particular verses. I mean, that's one compromise. Yeah. You know, well, Cause it's probably what I would do. Yeah. It's always tricky because sometimes I'll have small passages, like in difficult texts from the prophets where you can really only, you know, read a couple, you know, small portion and people Mm -hmm. won't, you know, get really confused. Mm -hmm. Um, But then in order to preach on it, interpret it, you got to put it in its larger context. Mm -hmm. And then there are other times where you need to read a big passage and then zoom in on a few verses. And that's that's a judgment call each case. Yeah. No, that's good. And I've actually done that. In, whew, any number of times, read something longer, but then to give some context and then zeroed in on one or two particular issues here. I mean, I guess I'm always drawn in Genesis 1. There's so much there. I guess I'm drawn to the first couple of verses, but then I'm also drawn to 26 and 27. I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people are, because there you have, again, the conditions of things before God acts. 
And then what does God do when he acts? How do conditions change? How, 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 do, how do I change? How do you change? How does our world change when God acts? But also, um, if, you, if you jump to 26, 27, well, well, there you can talk about what it means to be in the image of God. Who is God? And how do you and I, in some cases, mirror him? I mean, that could, you could, you could maybe, if it were me, I would, I would maybe read the whole thing and then focus on either the first couple of verses or maybe 26 and 27. How about you? What, yeah. what, what would you be? Yeah, well, well, man, I feel like you, again, this is from early on, but we could think about it more homiletically now than just merely observationally. I feel like there was the beginnings of actually a little three-point sermon in, in your very first observation at the beginning of this podcast. Oh, yeah. When you noticed, noted formless, void, mm-hmm. and the darkness, and then the reversal of that, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a chiasm then, right? It is a chiasm. Yeah. Light into darkness, and then objects into the void. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, the first object that God seems to create, because even light is kind of more this energy. Yeah, sure. Right, and it's and and I don't just mean that in a modern scientific sense, although that's also relevant. But in day four, He makes the lights. So this isn't this isn't the sun, moon, and stars yet. This is just light, whatever that is. Yeah, right, right. Is. Yeah. So light, and then the first kind of object is the expanse or the dome. Mm-hmm. The, the the becomes that becomes named heaven mm-hmm. in the second day, yeah, and then beginning to to form things and there's already a little bit of forming happening not the not the word but yeah. the gathering of the waters on the third day right yeah. there's a little bit of a putting into shape what is just chaotic yeah. uh, mess right. yeah and I wonder if there would be a really neat um it's the Genesis story itself referencing also the character of God as you go, as well as speaking in our own lives, in our own life, mm. when there's darkness, when there's, I almost want to find, yeah, I know. I, I think I found it. It's, 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 it's going to, I want to say formless emptiness mm. and darkness. That way they rhyme. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if it rhymes, yeah. it's true. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I know formless and void is the kind of standard, but but it's but nice it, to have it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and emptiness is a legit translation. It is. Of it is. So if you had formless emptiness, darkness. I mean, wow. I mean, you can. That's your whole first third to half of the sermon. Yeah. It's just honestly, especially um, with things going on right now. Absolutely. But it, even if someone's re- listening to this podcast two years from now, there's always that. There's always the that which is decomposing, that which needs to be formed and shaped there's that which is empty in our lives and there's that which is dark yeah and then it's so cool that then there's this reversal that is then in the opposite order so Mm -hmm. then you get so that gives it a nice chiastic shape to the sermon because then you get to reverse them in reverse order from introducing them so you got to move front talk about what you know things that are just chaos that need form yeah you know and then and then there's just emptiness right an empty wilderness yeah. Um, a vacuum. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's perfectly, I mean, I, again, right now, if I'm thinking, you know, if we're still, e- even if the quarantine's lighting, letting up by the time this drops, it affects everybody. When you talk about like, like when I think of like all my kids at home, the chaos of needing form, we need a schedule, <laughs> right? 
Amen, brother. Amen. Then, then I think of my friends who are single. Mm. Now, for them, this is this isn't formless. This is emptiness. This is what yep. this time. Yeah. Trapped at home, mm-hmm. way less connection. Mm-hmm. Um, all their usual connection things that happen at office yep. or in third spaces have just been r- ripped yep. from them. Yes. And and then the darkness of just not seeing what's next mm-hmm. for all of us. Mm-hmm. And again, that's very uh, COVID-19 specific. Again, that may, that'll still be relevant in May or June, but even yep. a year or two from now with different stories, the same kind of applies. Some of us are, want some shape. Some of us want something to fill up yep. the emptiness and yeah. some of, and all of us need to just see, right. And then to be able to bring in light vision. Yes. Yeah. Light and, and, a, and, and objects and life, light and life yeah. and shape, you know, yeah. Yeah. that then culminates in the human that's shaped, right. Uh, Absolutely. It's formed yeah. into to the image of God like, to be like God. That's the key. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. No, I, yeah. I, that sounds good. I stole it from you, bro. I just turned what you that's said beautiful. into a sermon. <laughs> you did a brilliant job. I love it. Yeah. Thanks, man. I, I think that's good. You've, you've said brilliant too much. You're complimenting me too much. I need to have you back on <laughs> more often. <laughs> okay. you, did a, you did a mediocre job of doing that. <laughs> right there. That's better. I, that's how, that's, that would be my view. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, but I, I do. I, I, like, I like just what you did semantically with the word, just emptiness and how they all they not all sound the same, but they're easy to remember. And all of us can somehow connect with them. We, we've all had those experiences. Yeah. I, I, I think um, recognizing the reality of them in, in the world in which we live and in our own lives and what God does about them is a sermon of a lot of hope. So I, I like it. It's good. Yeah. So uh, yeah, well, maybe that's enough. I don't know. Sure. It would be it would be hard for me having shaped the sermon this way to not want to use well uh, this is something we can end on it would be really hard for me not to want to use John chapter 1 because the language of life and light is there you know oh yeah and the image of god that Jesus is the image of god but 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 there's also this kind of like all my Old Testament professors are like on my shoulder, like saying, hey, you don't have to turn to the New Testament to find the good news. The good news is already there. That's true. You know, so I want to figure out, I don't know if you have a, if you have any opinions about how much New Testament, explicit New Testament referencing you want to put in your OT sermons. Because if you do it too much, you imply that Old Testament's just the problem to which the New Testament's the solution. That's yeah. And that's a bad habit, I think. But at the same time, I like making connections. So I, I want to – Well, do you have any thoughts on that just homiletically as a listener or preacher of sermons? The old, you, can, you can convey that the good news is already here in the Old Testament. Grace is already an Old Testament doctrine. The love of God is already an Old Testament doctrine. But if the Bible is not to be divided up too much, if, if we see it as one cohesive unit, it's a whole, uh, right? I mean, we're not Marcionites here, but, but we're – we see it yeah. is integral, then I think it's helpful to bring in even clearer passages in the New Testament that maybe even give a, a more of a, a laser focus on light or laser focus on what it means to be in the image of God and bring that in. I think I've read the fathers too many times. And so I am. Yeah, me too. That's I, that, yeah. I, I always, yeah. so I, I, I just like the, I like that theological interpretation of scripture 
I like using scripture to interpret scripture while at the same time I understand the Old Testament specialist saying, don't do that as if, yeah. as, as if this is somehow um, deficient. And, and the Old Testament's not deficient, but I think we can say, um, I remember one of my old seminary professors used to say, the Old Testament ends with its mouth hanging open, waiting for something else to happen. It ends in anticipation waiting to be fulfilled. So we wouldn't, of course, as Christians say that the Old Testament is a problem that the New Testament solves. No, the Old Testament is good. It's God's revelation. But God intends there to be more to the story that makes Mm -hmm. sense of the whole. And that comes when Jesus comes. So all that to say, I'm always very comfortable underscoring points that the Old Testament makes with some New Testament Mm -hmm. passages. Because they're not two competing narratives. It's one narrative. Yeah. Yeah, it suddenly occurred to me that I could see a sermon where I kind of just riff totally like the, 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 this outline I pitched earlier, you know, formless emptiness, darkness, and then light life and image was mm-hmm. kind of the, the six points as it were, you know, problem yep. solution, yeah. just reminding in case it wasn't clear for the readers and I, cause I'm still sorting it out, but I could see myself preaching that and then kind of like even getting and just making allusions but then like maybe right at the end, I could say, you know, you know, let me end with a, with a great one of my, a great poem that is actually also my favorite commentary on Genesis one mm-hmm. and then turn to John one, <laughs> but read it, but like quote it as a, as a commentary on it, as opposed to this is new information, mm-hmm. rather see it the way that I believe the author of John would, John have, would seen have seen it. Yeah. Which yeah. is I'm merely commenting on what was already true there, even yeah. if not perceptible until later events. Absolutely. Um, as John, as, as, as John himself says in the voice of the narrator in John chapter 12, that Isaiah said, quotes Isaiah and then says, you know, the prophet Isaiah said this because he saw the glory of Jesus yeah. um, and spoke of it beforehand, you know? So this yeah. kind of, notion that the, 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 the scriptures were all contemplating the same object, mm-hmm. though not all under the same name or the, under the same aspect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if that would be a, and that could be, I mean, especially if you're dropping little hints along the way um, with illusions, I feel like that could be a fun way to end the sermon. That it would be, you know, I yeah. love, I love calling John, if John one, a commentary on yeah. Genesis one, because in some sense it is. Yeah. Um, you like know, Romans is a commentary on Deuteronomy and Isaiah, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think any I don't think any Old Testament scholar would would object to you know reading something helpful out of like word biblical commentary, but you've got yeah. even better in the in the New Testament and yeah, and you know this would be more in the academic academic discussion, but I don't want to be so bound by sort of a modernist historical critical reading yeah. of scripture that we forget how the church has read scripture for most of its history. Yeah. And for most of its history, it, it reads something like the way the fathers read the scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I get, and I always appreciate the old Testament specialist warning. Um, and I want to heed it, but I think it's appropriate to bring in the rest, more of the narrative and, and, yeah, and well, maybe- get more light on it. Well, maybe this is where we can we can pick a fight sometime. It'd be fun because I'm I have a lot of because I'm not just speaking for the OT specialists. I'm I have some even some theological reasons for also wanting to not be so enamored with classic Christian interpretation that mm. 
we uh, we're too resistant to the insights of historical uh, critical commentary. But that's not me picking a fight now. That's me. That's me wetting the appetite for our listeners to say, "Hey, sometime there'll be a good. We'll, yeah. have, a, we'll have a good debate. We'll have a grand yeah. debate. On- we will. Now, I will, <laughs> we'll say. I'll say that I off the bat that I, I'm not anti historical critical, right? <laughs> but I love if you haven't read it. There's a great article by the uh, he's he's passed away now, but David Steinmetz. Um, called the superiority of pre-critical. Yes. You've probably read that. That's yes. good. You know? Classic. Yes. So, you know, I mean that I, I've had students read that before. I think there's, I think yes. there's wisdom there, but, but that, that, ref- that reflects my former views. <laughs> okay. But I don't think, so I don't think we don't, I don't think we dump on, I don't think we dump on the historical critical method, yeah. but um, it's just I don't inferior. Think, huh? <laughs> well, I don't even know if we have to call it inferior, but I, I don't, I think that the historical critical method has tried to just supplant earlier methods of reading. Yeah. And I no, don't, and I'm with you on that. I, yeah. I'll, I'll that's, up that's my, that, that's, that's my concern. Cause I was, when I was educated, yeah. you know, in undergrad graduate, you know, um, it was basically that. And I didn't, I didn't have any understanding of earlier interpretation of scripture until I really started getting into patristic studies. And I thought, wow, there's, they're seeing things here that I would have never thought of before, you know, and maybe well, yeah, they, maybe they take some flights of fancy sometimes, but, <laughs> but 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 they but the point is they saw scripture as one theological cohesive narrative, one whole unit, rather than taking more of a piecemeal approach that I think we can sometimes take when we only allow the historical critical method to guide our interpretation. So, yeah. we, but we can talk about well, that. Well, that's a that's a little uh, a foreshadowing of things to come, perhaps. So. Thanks so much for giving an hour of your time, John, to the text and with me and with our listeners. Appreciate it a ton. And as we close out, I just want to say thanks as always to uh, Todd and Eric for their great production and editorial work. I can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks to all of you listeners uh, for chiming in and for subscribing and sharing. And if you get a chance, there's a a link in the show notes if you want to um, donate to the show just to offset costs for our editors and producers. I don't keep any of that. I pass it all on to them. Um, we'd appreciate your support if that's uh, possible. And uh, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.